0: I'm not going to ask you to turn to a passage of the Word of God as we begin. We're going to be looking at a number of passages, and uh, this may be a message where you want to just listen. If you're taking notes, write down the references with a view towards going back and being able to look more thoughtfully at those references later on. Uh, We read from the first half of Proverbs 3 to 9, and for many of God's people, Through the centuries, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 have been a a favorite text. Uh, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. He will make your paths straight. A precious promise uh, with directives, with a warning. I'd like to uh, organize my material tonight. I have organized my material tonight with that passage Kind of as the backdrop. Uh, You'll hear me making reference to some of its language, but I want to draw our attention to six reasons why it's important for us to seek God's face deliberately, and we believe in an intensified way, with respect to the selection of new elders. Uh, We are giving ourselves monthly for a time, we'll do it at least three months, and we may extend it beyond August. But this coming Wednesday, God willing, for the second time, uh, we'll be engaging as a membership, regular attenders, those visiting are welcome to come, but uh, we're engaging in a day of fasting and prayer in which we're seeking God's face in that intensified way, asking Him for conversions, praying for the powerful work of the Holy Spirit in our midst, whereby as we just sang, uh, the Leopard spots are changed, and hearts of stone are turned to tender hearts. We're going to pray for conversions. We're also praying in a focused way concerning the prospect of nominating and recognizing and embracing additional elders. That's a big step for us to take, and I want you to think with me about six reasons why it is warranted for us privately and as a church to be making this a deliberate and even intensified matter of prayer. One reason is that even our sincere and well-grounded judgment in thinking that a given man would serve well may not reflect the mind of God. Even when we have good reason to think that a given individual uh, would serve well as an elder... Uh, that assessment may not reflect the mind of the Lord. Consider 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 and 2. I'm not going to go into the context, and again, I invite you to go back later and to reflect upon these passages uh, in their fullness. 2 Samuel 7, 1 and 2. Now, when the king, speaking of David, lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from All his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And we know from Scripture that David was outstanding in his devotion to the Lord. God himself assessed David as the man after his own heart. And as one who had a passionate devotion to the living God, it bothered him that he was now living in fancy digs. He had a palace while God was living, so to speak, in a tent. Uh, that, that was a grief to David, and he wanted to build a man- magnificent temple befitting a magnificent God. Well, Nathan, the man of God, told him, essentially, that's a great idea. Let's do it. And... Uh, God's with you, and that was sincere counsel, and there was want for the advice. The idea of a great temple was a worthy idea. It was something that God indeed uh, would bring to pass in Israel, and who better than David to do it, given his devotion to the Lord and, and given the, the, the unusual gift of leadership that that man uh, was, was given but God revealed to Nathan that David was not his choice. Uh, and here, I, re- I realized David was already a leader, but in terms of being selected for a given task, Nathan thought, this is a great idea. David, you're the man. And that was not right. It was not the mind of God that David would build the temple the Lord had selected Solomon, David's son, to be the leader in the erecting of that sacred edifice. Nathan thought that David was the man for the task was not evil. It did not seem unwise, but it was not the mind of God. And thus, in his speaking quickly to David, he reflected something of a leaning on his own understanding. A godly man, no doubt a man that was marked by wisdom in many ways, but in this particular decision-making process, Uh, It seems that he didn't stop to seek the Lord's face carefully and to ask God to grant clear guidance. He just kind of acted on intuition, on impulse, and in leaning on his own understanding, he misjudged the situation. We're not going to receive direct revelation uh, concerning new elders in the way that Nathan received a direct revelation from God concerning not David but Solomon. But God has his ways of making paths straight. And we should seek him with the confidence that if we are erring, if we're not in line with his mind uh, in a given decision, that he will help us and that he will direct our way. A second reason why it's crucial that we seek the Lord's guidance in selecting leaders is that our judgment of men may be flawed. Our judgment of men may be flawed. Consider 1 Samuel 16, verse 1, and then verses 6 and 7. The Lord said to Samuel, another prophet, How long will you grieve over Saul? since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And skipping down to verse 6, when Samuel and his party arrived at Jesse's home, he looked on Eliab, Jesse's firstborn, and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now Samuel was was a man of God. Uh, he was outstanding in his generation, and he was a man, he was the kind of man from whom you would seek counsel in that day, wisely so. Uh, He was a a rightly esteemed servant of the Lord. But he had a bias the scripture draws our attention to with respect to how he assessed King Saul, the first king of Israel. God had made it clear already that he had rejected King Saul because of Saul's disobedience, but Samuel maintained a, a... a sense of disproportionate favor toward King Saul and it expressed itself in an undue grieving. There are times where we grieve too much. There are times where we need to rein it in and our unwillingness or inability to rein in our grief uh, speaks to a disproportionate attachment to something that's not in in sync with the will of God. And, And God at this point, gracious as he is, says, Samuel, enough. Why do you keep grieving? I've rejected him. You need to move on. Well, Samuel, in obedience to God, goes to the home of Jesse, uh, where God has revealed the next king is going to come from this man's home. It may be that part of the prophet's partiality towards the first king, King Saul, was that Many of you will recall that Saul was a very impressive physical specimen, literally head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. He literally stood out among Hebrew men. And it may be that that was part of why Samuel had been so drawn to him. In ancient times, being bigger counted for a lot more than it does in our day. And it seems like that could possibly be part of his attachment to Saul because he just looks the passage tells us that Eliab and immediately concludes what? This is God's man. He didn't know squat about Eliab. But the man made a physical impression upon him. He was a uh, you know, striking dude in terms of the muscles. And Samuel thinks this is God's man. And God reproves him saying, no, no, you're, you're, not, you're not looking accurately and wisely at, at, the, at the man. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. Like Samuel, we can be unduly impressed with a given man, thinking more highly of him than we ought to think, Romans 12, 3. We can also, on the other hand, be unduly critical of a given man, thinking less of him than we ought to think. Consider 1 Corinthians 16, 10 through 11a. Paul is closing his first epistle to the church at Corinth, and he tells them, When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am, so let no one despise him. Now, I realize we're moving quickly through these passages, but, but, it, but I appeal to you to stop and think for a moment about a church receiving that news concerning a leader who was coming in to their midst. And the one message that they receive from the, uh, in that day, uh, obviously, uh, the Apostle, had a lead role over the churches. The one message they received from the Apostle Paul is, put this man at ease. See to it that no one regards him with contempt. Don't look down on this man in a despising way. Don't regard with contempt this brother who's doing the work of the Lord. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that there were things about Timothy a native timidity, a lack of confidence that left him vulnerable to being regarded as less than impressive. Of course, Paul's admonition reflected probably not so much on Timothy as it reflected on the church in Corinth. They were a highly gifted congregation, but they were an immature congregation. There was a lot of carnality present in the congregation and one of the ways that, that carnality expressed itself was in a spirit of pride that had not been uh, duly mortified and there was a proneness to being overly critical and Paul obviously felt strongly Corinth needs Timothy but he was afraid that that, that the church in Corinth would relate to Timothy in such a way that would really undermine Timothy's ability to have the ministry that Paul yearned to see him have in that important place. The fact of the matter is that there's no one in the New Testament that Paul prized more than Timothy. Paul knew how impressive the man was in the midst of some of the dimensions of weakness that in a more superficial way could lead people to look down on him. In God's kindness, we're not a young, immature church here at Grace Reformed Baptist, but it would not be in keeping with humility to think that we're not vulnerable at all to thinking too highly, perhaps, about some, or thinking too lowly, perhaps, about others, being overly critical. Let us not lean on our own understanding in this matter. Let us seek God's face. With the conviction that he will make our paths straight, and he'll help us to understand his own providential will in this matter. A third reason why it's crucial that we seek the Lord's guidance in selecting leaders is that choosing a man or men can become an occasion for differences of opinion. Choosing a leader or leaders in Christ's church can become an occasion for differences of opinion. And those differences can lead, in turn, to conflict and even separation. Consider Acts 15, verses 36 through 39. Acts 15, 36 through 39. Where we read, after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city, Now, it's crystal clear from Acts 13, verses 1 and following, that the Spirit of God had put Paul and Barnabas together into a missionary team. That that was a partnership made in heaven. It was in a context of prayer and fasting that God had selected two leaders among a larger number of leaders in the church in Antioch, separate Saul and Barnabas For the first missionary journey, they had known extraordinary success. I mean, the Spirit of God had rested upon them in the first missionary journey. Now, after some weeks of intermission, they talk about a second missionary journey, going back to visit the churches that had been planted earlier to see how these young Christian congregations were doing. But they had a difference of opinion with respect to the selection of a leader it wasn't a doctrinal matter it wasn't a church policy matter it was a judgment call it was a matter of opinion as to the fitness of a man named John Mark as to whether he should be on the team he had gone awall uh, on the first journey and Barnabas thought strongly that time having passed since that earlier incident it's important that we ask John Mark to join us on the second journey Paul thought strongly that no, uh, John Mark should not go with us. His confidence in John Mark uh, had been impacted by John Mark's behavior in such a way that led Paul to feel firmly, this is not uh, what we should do. And the men uh, felt so strongly in their respective opinions, one thinking, yes, this is the man, one thinking, no, he is not the man, that they end up in sharp disagreement, and separate over the uh, process of seeking to come to a decision. We're praying, acknowledging God in all of our ways. We're praying, trusting Him with all of our hearts. And we're praying, not presuming that, oh, we're beyond that, I mean, that may happen to a Paul and Barnabas. That would never happen here. No, we don't presume that. We, we want this process to strengthen our unity. And we believe that it can and should have that effect. But we recognize that there are risks involved. And these are things that we take to the Lord in prayer. And we just uh, lay it before him, uh, seeking to uh, see him work in a way that would further draw us together and strengthen our harmony. A fourth reason that we fast and pray is that we desire Christ to grant a good chemistry among those that lead us. We desire our risen Lord, our great pastor, to grant a good chemistry among the under-shepherds that lead us. Now keep thinking about Paul In Barnabas, Acts 15, differences of opinion are not inherently bad. Differences of opinion are not inherently undesirable. Our God has ordained what kind of eldership in the local church? A plurality. God has ordained that the norm of the New Testament church is that there will not be one man. From one angle, you might say the best way to avoid disagreement is just have one man calling on all Jots. That is not the wisdom of Christ with respect to the leadership of His church, nor is it the mind of Christ that what's ideal is to have one strong personality and then a number of yes men surrounding him who've got their rubber stamp out and they're just ready wherever he says run, you run. And they're just there to simply uh, provide some cheerleading and moral support. He's the guy doing all the thinking and all the decision making. One of the basic values of a plurality of elders is that there is strength in having a measure of diversity in thinking through different matters. For all of us who were married, have have we not, for you husbands, have have you not appreciated the fact that there were times where your wife had a different idea than you? Uh, Do you not thank God that there were some things that that your wife didn't just say, yes, sir, whatever you think? But she sweetly and graciously, respectfully said, Hun, maybe this, maybe this isn't your A-game you're thinking on this matter. Might we think about uh, approaching this in a different way? I bless God. I bless God that at home and in church, it hasn't been Stu Johnston, Stu Johnston, Stu Johnston. I fear where we would be. If that was the case, it's helpful to have people who can say, "Wait a second, I—I I don't think I agree. I think this could be a better approach." But in a situation where you have diversity and you're seeking to work through important decisions, there needs to be from God the gift, and this needs to be worked at among the men of a, of a chemistry where you learn how to work out and work through differences and you come to a consensus, uh, if not a unanimity at least, a, a consensus as to the way you're going to go. I think Acts 15, verses 39 and following, one of the saddest passages in the whole book of Acts. You long, at least I long to see Paul and Barnabas saying, you know, maybe I'm wrong here and I'm willing to yield. Um, Can we just take a month, pray about it, seek counsel from men that we respect here at Antioch, maybe even talk to people in Jerusalem, and then come to a decision. We want to have a chemistry among the under-shepherds that lead us whereby they can work together well, not in the sense that they always think the same thing, but in the sense that they can bring together diverse perspectives in a way that promotes the unity and the health, both of the leadership and of the church. A fifth reason why it's crucial that we seek the Lord's guidance in selecting leaders is that a well-qualified man may be providentially hindered or unwilling. But the Lord can change that if it's purpose to do so. And prayer may be the vital means whereby someone's mind changes, or someone's circumstances change, whereby he becomes free to do something that earlier he had thought he couldn't do. Consider First Samuel sixteen twelve. First, uh, if I said First Samuel, I meant to say First Corinthians. First Corinthians sixteen twelve. This is right after Paul's words concerning Timothy that we uh, drew attention to earlier. Timothy was coming, someone else was not coming. Verse 12, the apostle writes Now, concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Now, the Apostle Paul, uh, thinking of all of the challenges in that immature church at Corinth, may well have thought Apollos was his first choice because Apollos was outstanding in his giftedness, and the Corinthians were infatuated with giftedness. And it may well have been Paul's thought, Apollos can really help them because he's so outstanding in his eloquence. It may be that he thought, if Apollos goes, it will really make things Work better for Timothy. Timothy will work better if he's not the main guy but can kind of labor beside or in the shadow even of Apollos. We don't know the details. I've tried to put myself in the shoes of Apollos and getting a phone call from the Apostle Paul in which he says, Johnston, I greatly urge you to go to Corinth. And I have envisioned myself saying, Yes, sir. And I've tried to think of Apollos saying, Paul, I am not at all willing to do that. Thank you. God bless. And, you know, it's admirable that there's no suggestion that the Apostle Paul, in speaking of Apollos in this way, views him as being stubborn or being self-willed or just not willing to serve the Lord. There's none of that. He recognized that under the canopy of the Lordship of Christ, we have a measure of individual liberty and responsibility to seek to discern how we can best serve Christ, where, when, and we have some decision-making involved in that. And Paul simply recognized that that Apollos, as he assessed his situation, uh, thought it's not best for me to drop everything and to go to Corinth now. Maybe I can go down the road. But the way Paul describes it is that he was, he was very much not willing to do that. And, and Paul, Paul accepted that. Even an apostle could not completely control th- this matter of leadership who serves where. It's not as simple as just dictating this is what's going to happen. We lean not on our own understanding. We trust God with all of our hearts. We acknowledge Him in all of our ways. Who has the hearts and circumstances of all people in His hands? The God of heaven. He turns them however He wishes. Proverbs 21.1. And we pray, trusting that if we have a situation in our own ranks where uh, someone is very well qualified to serve but is unwilling to serve or providentially hindered from doing so, if God wants to change that person's circumstances, that person's attitude. God can and God will do that. A sixth and final reason for fasting and prayer with respect to this matter of additional elders is that we seek those leaders that the ascended Christ has provided for his bride here Grace Reform Baptist Church in this season of our lives. At the end of the day, what, what we most want are the great pastors' gifts that he himself has prepared to serve us here uh, in the role, and, and we're thinking of, of lay pastors, as we think, of adding to the eldership. Uh, we're not thinking of needing a new uh, primary preacher. We're not thinking right now of a new staff pastor. We're thinking of lay elders, uh, bivocational uh, type men. But we want the men that the ascended Christ has brought to us and has prepared for us that, he, that those men might serve us in this particular way. Consider Ephesians 4, 10 through 12. We're speaking of Christ. He who descended, came from heaven to earth, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave. Christ gave. Real under-shepherds come from heaven. True pastors are are not the product simply of a training program. True pastors are the gift of the risen Jesus to particular churches. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. That's the key phrase with respect to what's before us. The shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up The body of Christ. Again, true pastors, whether they're staff pastors or laymen, uh, whether they are in the pulpit or whether they're never in the pulpit, uh, their ministry is more one on one, speaking privately to someone uh, in a conversation after a stated meeting or in someone's home or over coffee uh, down at the shop. Uh, True pastors are men that only God can produce. But this passage assures us that the enthroned Lord is producing such men and giving such men. This is part of his having laid down his life for his bride, having shed blood for sinners like us. There is nothing that Jesus Christ will withhold that he knows his people to need. And the New Testament makes clear that one of the fundamental means of grace that the great pastor has appointed Are under-shepherds, who in his name uh, shepherd the flock of God that is among them. That's a fulfillment of a pledge that God made centuries ago, recorded in Jeremiah 3.15, among other places, that he would raise up shepherds after his own heart, who would feed his people with knowledge and with understanding. Christ is more concerned than we are, for the equipping of the saints here for the work of ministry. And by the way, that, that, that part of the Ephesians 4 passage is significant and maybe worthy of exposition and application because uh, it draws attention to, it emphasizes the work of shepherds and teachers in equipping the saints for the work of service. And that takes place from the pulpit, but it also takes place through private Shepherding as well, encouraging people in the cultivation of their gifts and the development of their character, whereby they can move into larger measures of fruitfulness in serving one another. Uh, And of course, that service primarily in a given body is behind the scenes type serving. I was talking with someone this morning about um, the email that went out concerning Olivia Taylor and... Uh, the, the need for help in supplying uh, some educational supplies for, for the children. And, um, and, and the person made the comment that in less than an hour, every single need was, was met. Uh, and, and it was just a, a very uh, fresh testimony this morning. I was talking with someone after Sunday school about how the body works, you know, serving one another helping one another in those kinds of unseen, invisible ways, just people stepping up in order to help someone that's in a crisis situation right now, and there's there's need. And one of the key functions of Christ-given pastors is is to facilitate and to aid in the equipping, the developing of the saints for the work of service. Encouraging that maturation in serving the king and in serving others. Well, we're seeking the face of the great pastor in these months. And some of us have been doing this for a good while now. uh, Asking him to guide us in our decision making about the identity of these men. And we're not looking for a voice from heaven. Please be concerned if I talk to you in the next sermon about having heard a voice from heaven. We're not not looking for bold print in the clouds identifying by name the men that God wants to be elders here. We will think through as a congregation, and we will continue to think through as elders. Uh, Proverbs 3.5 does not warn against thinking. The whole book of Proverbs urges us to think. So many bad decisions are made in this world and in churches precisely because of a failure to think. People emoting too much, thinking too little. We must think hard, carefully, realistically, with our Bibles open before us as to the things that we're evaluating but we don't lean on our own understanding as if we've got this. We lean on our God and we express that leaning in prayer, acknowledging Him in all of our ways and we have reason for confidence, for assurance. He will lead us. Have we not seen that, brothers and sisters, over the years of our lives, privately and corporately? And as I was thinking about you know, the whole matter of God changing the hearts of people, I thought again of uh, contacting Dear Jones. It's hard to believe it was just last year, last calendar year. And, uh, and con- conveying to him that we just really desired very much that he and Nicolene would, would prayerfully consider just looking at the possibility of coming here. Just, would you be willing just to investigate that, to consider it as a possibility and, uh, and they prayed about it for several weeks and, uh, and, and responded, no, um, uh, we're honored, uh, thank you for your kindness and even thinking of us in this way, um, a model of graciousness, but still the bottom line was, no, we don't think it'd be wise to pick the family up and move when we're anticipating picking the family up and moving back to Africa in four or five years. And what happened to y'all? We kept praying. And God wrought a change of heart. Aren't you glad he did? I have thanked God hundreds of times that, that Jones and his family have come among us. But there was a time where it looked like it was one more no. And I was at the bottom of the well. I, uh, I, I, wasn't, I was not sure where to fish next. But but God God was working. Christ, the great pastor, knew what Grace Reform Baptist Church in Mevin needed. Now let's step back for a moment from thinking about choosing leaders and let's close just thinking about life as a whole. Proverbs 3, 5 and 6 is not directly about choosing pastors, it's about life. How do you live? Now some of you need to hear me clearly on this. At the heart of our sin is living in this world as if we're in charge. That is at the heart of, of our rebellion against our maker. It's living on God's earth and eating God's food and breathing God's air and living as if I'm in charge. I call the shots. I define what's important. I define what I'm going to dream about, what I'm going to pursue. And God, uh, maybe I'm willing for you to have a box in my life, but I'm in charge. That way will never prosper. I appeal to you. Plead with God to work in your soul. and, And for those in whom God has, bless him. It's life-changing to be brought to a disposition of, I am going to seek to trust the Lord in everything. And I am going to refuse to lean on my own understanding because there's a ton of stuff that I'm going to get wrong and, and because I'm so limited, a ton of things I can't even see. But God sees them all. I am not going to lean on my understanding. I am going to acknowledge Him that He is the King that he is the Lord. That he rules the world and he rules us. And it's good that he is the master. And his yoke is not a harsh yoke. It is a gracious yoke. And I willingly place my neck under the yoke of the master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I respond to him in his promise that if I come to him in the weariness of my guilt and the thousand and one bad decisions that I've made, if I come to him in my guilt and in my need, he will give me rest. And he will make my path straight to heaven. And In the big picture, that's what we want, y'all. We, we want God to make our path straight to glory. Let's pray together. Before we pray, um, I'm I'm not trying to be humorous here. I'm really not. I earlier used the phrase, don't know squat. And frankly, I'm not exactly sure what that term means. So if that's vernacular for uh, kind of unclean sailor-type language, I ask that you please forgive me because I don't want to demean the pulpit the church of jesus christ by speaking in a way that that does not represent him well it's never a preacher's job to be funny it's a preacher's job to tell the truth and to represent god well so i'm not sure that i spoke wrongly but if i did i apologize let's pray Our God, we bless you for your word. We are so thankful for the way it is a light to our path, a lamp to our feet, and we confess, oh God, that we would be so lost without its illuminating guidance. Oh Lord, we pray that you would protect us from the influence of the scorner and the scoffer, of those who do not revere your word, but revere uh, the ways of men in a way that is independent of you Uh, we ask O God for grace to love your word to ponder it and to walk in its ways we ask that you would guide us as a church with respect to additional leaders we're trusting you to do that in Jesus name amen